Section 22 of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Claude Banta. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. The Annals. Book 2. Part 4. Various Rebellions. The same year, the boldness of a single bondman had, but for early prevention, borne the state with great combustions and civil arms. A slave of posthumous Agrippa, his name Clemens, having learnt the death of Augustus, conceived a design to sail to Planasia, and there, releasing Agrippa by art or force, to carry him to the armies in Germany. No slavish design, but the slowness of the laden vessel defeated his bold purpose, for Agrippa was already murdered. Hence he conceived views still higher and more daring. He stole the funeral ashes, and sailing to Cosa, a promontory of Etruria, hid himself in desert places, till his hair and beard were grown long, for in age and person he was not unlike his master. Then a report spread by trusty emissaries and the associates of the plot that Agrippa lived began to thicken. It first crept abroad in dark whispers, as usual in matters of dangerous tendency, but becoming soon a prevailing rumor, it filled the greedy ears of the credulous, or was encouraged by turbulent minds, such as are ever fond of public agitations and changes. He himself, when he entered the neighboring towns, did it in the gloom of the day, never to be seen publicly, nor long in the same place. But, as truth is strengthened by observation and time, lies by haste and uncertainty, he outran fame. Here he stayed not to be known, there he arrived before his name arrived. It flew through Italy in the meantime that, by the bounty of the gods, Agrippa was preserved. It was even believed at Rome. His supposed arrival at Ostia was celebrated by great multitudes abroad, and in the city by clandestine cabals. Whilst divided cares distracted Tiberius, whether he should suppress his slave by the power of the sword, or suffer the empty credulity of the public to vanish with time. Now he thought that nothing was to be slighted, now that every thing was not to be dreaded, wavering between shame and fear. At last he committed the affair to Celestius Crispus. Crispus chose two of his creatures, some say two soldiers, and directed them to go directly to him, to feign themselves his adherents, men who were conscious that he was the genuine Agrippa, to present him with money, and to promise him, without reserve, their faith and fortunes. They instantly executed these orders, and afterwards, spying him one night without guards, and being themselves furnished with a proper band of men, they carried him to the palace, gagged and bound. To Tiberius, when he asked him how he was become Agrippa, he is said to have answered, just as you became Caesar. But to discover his accomplices, he could never be constrained. 
neither dared Tiberius ventured to execute him publicly, but ordered him to be dispatched in a secret part of the palace, and his body to be carried privately away. And, though many of the prince's household, many knights and senators, were said to have supported him with money and assisted him with their counsels, no inquiry followed. At the end of the year, a triumphal arch was raised near the temple of Saturn, as a monument for the recovery of the Varian eagles under the conduct of Germanicus and the auspices of Tiberius. A temple was directed to happy fortune near the Tiber, in the gardens bequeathed to the Roman people by Caesar the dictator. A chapel was consecrated to the Julian family, and statues to the deified Augustus in the suburbs called Bovile. In the consulship of Caius Celius and Lucius Pomponius, the sixth and twentieth of May, Germanicus Caesar triumphed over the Cheruscans, the Catians, the Angriverians, and the other nations as far as the Elbe. In the triumph were carried all the spoils and captives, with the representations of mountains, of rivers, and of battles, so that his conquests, because he was restrained from completing them, were taken for complete. His own graceful person, and his chariot filled with his five children, heightened the shoe and the delight of the beholders. Yet they were checked with secret fears, as they remembered that popular favor had proved malignant to his father Drusus, that his uncle Marcellus was snatched in his youth from the burning affections of the populace, and that ever short-lived and unfortunate were the favorites of the Roman people. Tiberius distributed to the people, in the name of Germanicus, three hundred sestersec a man, and named himself his colleague in the consulship. Nor, even thus, did he gain the opinion of tenderness and sincerity. In effect, on pretense of investing the young prince with fresh preferment and honors, he resolved to alienate him from Rome, and, to accomplish it, craftily framed an occasion, or snatched such a one as chance presented. Archelaus had enjoyed the kingdom of Cappadocia now fifty years, a prince under the deep displeasure of Tiberius, because, in his retirement at Rhodes, the king had paid him no sort of court nor distinction, an omission which proceeded from no disdain, but from the warnings given him by the confidants of Augustus. For that the young Caius Caesar, the presumptive heir to the sovereignty then lived, and was sent to compose and administer the affairs of the East. Hence the friendship of Tiberius was reckoned then dangerous, but when, by the utter fall of the family of the Caesars, he had gained the empire, he enticed Archelaus to Rome, by means of letters from his mother, who, without dissembling her son's resentment, offered the king his mercy, provided he came and in person implored it. He, who was either ignorant of the snare, or dreaded violence if he had appeared to perceive it, hastened to the city, where he was received by Tiberius with great sternness and wrath, and soon after accused as a criminal in the Senate. The crimes alleged against him were mere fictions, yet, as equal treatment is unusual to kings, and to be treated like malefactors intolerable, Archelaus, who was broken with grief as well as age, by choice or fate, ended his life. His kingdom was reduced into a province, and by its revenues Tiberius declared, 
the tax of the hundredth penny would be abated, and reduced it for the future to the two hundredth. At the same time died Antiochus, king of Comagena, as also Philopater, king of Cilicia. And great combustions shook these nations, whilst many of the people desired the Roman government, and many were addicted to domestic monarchy. The princes, too, of Syria and Judea, as they were oppressed with impositions, prayed an abatement of tribute. These affairs, and such as I have above related concerning Armenia, Tiberius represented to the fathers, and that the commotions of the East could only be settled by the wisdom and abilities of Germanicus, for himself his age now declined, and that of Drusus was not yet sufficiently ripe. The provinces beyond the sea were thence decreed to Germanicus, with authority superior to all those who obtained provinces by lot, or the nomination of the prince. But Tiberius had already taken care to remove from the government of Syria Criticus Silenus, one united to Germanicus in domestic alliance, by having betrothed his daughter to Nero, the eldest son of Germanicus. In his room he had preferred Gnaeus Piso, a man of violent temper, incapable of subjection, and heir to all the ferocity and haughtiness of his father Piso. The same, who in the civil war assisted the reviving party against Caesar in Africa, with vehement efforts, then followed Brutus and Cassius, but had at last leave to come home, yet disdained to sue for any public offices, nay, was even courted by Augustus to accept the consulship. His son, besides his hereditary pride and impetuosity, was elevated with the nobility and wealth of Plancina his wife. Scarce yielded he to Tiberius, and, as men far beneath him, despised the sons of Tiberius. Neither did he doubt, but he was set over Syria on purpose, to defeat all the views of Germanicus. Some even believed that he had to this purpose secret orders from Tiberius, as it was certain that Livia directed Plancina to exert the spirit of the sex, and, by constant emulation and indignities, to persecute Agrippina, for the whole court was rent, and their affection secretly divided between Drusus and Germanicus. Tiberius was partial to Drusus, as his own son by generation. Others loved Germanicus, the more for the aversion of his uncle, and for being, by his mother, of more illustrious descent, as Mark Antony was his grandfather, and Augustus his great-uncle. On the other side, Pomponius Atticus, a Roman knight, by being the great-grandfather of Drusus, seemed thence to have derived a stain upon the images of the Claudian house. Besides, Agrippina, the wife of Germanicus, did, in the fruitfulness of her body and the reputation of her virtue, far excel Livia, the wife of Drusus. Yet the two brothers lived in amiable dearness and concord, no wife shaken or estranged by the reigning contention amongst their separate friends and adherents. Drusus was soon after sent into Illyricum in order to inure him to war and gain him the affections of the army. Besides, Tiberius thought that the youth, who lived wantoning in the luxuries of Rome, would be reformed in the camp, and that his own security would be enlarged when both his sons were at the head of the legions. 
but the pretense for sending him was the protection of the Swathians, who were then imploring assistance against the power of the Cheruscans. For these nations, who, since the departure of the Romans, saw themselves no longer threatened with terrors from abroad, and were then particularly engaged in a national competition for glory, had relapsed as usual into their old intestine feuds, and turned their arms upon each other. These two people were equally powerful, their two leaders equally brave, but differently esteemed, as the title of king, had drawn upon Marabodus the hate and aversion of their countrymen, whilst Arminius, as a champion warring for the defense of liberty, was the universal object of popular affection. Hence, not only the Cheruscans and their confederates, they who had been the ancient soldiery of Arminius, took arms, but to him too revolted the Semnones and Langobards, both Swavian nations, and even subjects of Marabodus, and by their accession he would have exceeded in Poissons. But Ingiomerus, with his band of followers, deserted to Marabodus, for no other cause than disdain, than an old man and an uncle like himself should obey Arminius, a young man, his nephew. Both armies were drawn out with equal hopes, nor disjointed like the old German battles into scattered parties for loose and random attacks. For, by long war with us, they had learnt to follow their ensigns, to strengthen their main body with parties of reserve and to observe the orders of their generals. Arminius was now on horseback. Viewing all the ranks, as he rode through them, he magnified their past feats. Their liberty recovered, the slaughtered legions, the spoils of arms wrested from the Romans, monuments of victory still retained in some of their hands. Upon Marabodus he fell with contumelious names, as a fugitive, one of no abilities in war a coward who had sought defense from the gloomy coverts of the Hercynian wood, and then, by gifts and solicitations, courted the alliance of Rome. A betrayer of his country, a lifeguard man of Caesar's, worthy to be exterminated with no less hostile vengeance than in the slaughter of Quintilius Varus they had shewn. Let them only remember so many battles bravely fought, these events, of which particularly the utter expulsion of the Romans, were sufficient proofs with whom remained the glory of the war. Neither did Marabodus fail to boast himself and depreciate the foe. In the person of Ingiomerus, he said, holding him by the hand, rested the whole renown of the Cheruscans, and from his counsels began all their exploits that ended in success. Arminius, a man of frantic spirit, and a novice in affairs, assumed to himself the glory of another, for, having by treachery surprised three legions, which expected no foe, and their leader, who feared no fraud, a base surprise, revenged since on Germany with heavy slaughters, and on Arminius himself with domestic infamy, while his wife and his son still bore the bonds of captivity for himself when attacked formerly by Tiberius at the head of twelve legions, he had preserved unstained the glory of Germany, and on equal terms ended the war. Nor did he repent of the treaty, since it was still in their hands to wage a new equal war with the Romans, or save blood and maintain peace. 
The armies, besides the incitements from these speeches, were animated by national stimulations of their own. The Cheruscans fought for their ancient renown, the Langobards for their recent liberty, and the Suavians and their king, on the contrary, were struggling for the augmentation of their monarchy. Never did armies make a fiercer onset. Never had onset a more ambiguous event, for both the right wings were routed, and hence a fresh encounter was certainly expected, until Marabotus drew off his army and encamped upon the hills, a manifest sign that he was humbled. Frequent desertions, too, leaving him at last naked of forces, he retired to the Marcomanians, and thence sent ambassadors to Tiberius to implore succors. They were answered, that he had no right to invoke aid of the Roman arms against the Cheruscans, since to the Romans, while they were warring with the same foe, he had never administered any assistance. Drusus was, however, sent away, as I have said, with the character of a negotiator of peace. The same year, twelve noble cities of Asia were overturned by an earthquake. The ruin happened in the night, and the more dreadful as its warnings were unobserved. Neither availed the usual sanctuary against such calamities, namely a flight to the fields, since those who fled, the gaping earth devoured. It is reported that mighty mountains subsided, plains were heaved into high hills, and that with flashes and eruptions of fire the mighty devastation was everywhere accompanied. The Sardians felt most heavily the rage of the concussion, and therefore most compassion. Tiberius promised them a hundred thousand great sesterset, and remitted their taxes for five years. The inhabitants of Magnesia, under Mount Sipolis, were held next in sufferings, and had proportionable relief. The Temnians, Philadelphians, the Ajatians, Apollonians, with those called the Mostinians or Macedonians of Arcania, the cities, too, of Hero Caesarea, Myrnia, Syme, and Molis, were all for the same term eased of tribute. It was likewise resolved to send one of the Senate to view the desolations and administer proper remedies. Marcus Alatus was therefore chosen, one of Praetorian rank, because a consular senator then governing Asia had another of the like quality been sent, an emulation between equals was apprehended, and consequently opposition and delays. The credit of this noble bounty to the public he increased by private liberalities which proved equally popular. The estate of the wealthy Emila Musa, claimed by the exchequer as she died into state, he surrendered to Emilius Lepidus, to whose family she seemed to belong, as also to Marcus Servilius, the inheritance of Potilius, a rich Roman knight, though part of it he had bequeathed to himself. But he found Servilius named Solhare in a former and well-attested will. He said, such was the nobility of both, that they deserved to be supported. Nor did he ever accept to himself any man's inheritance, but where former friendship gave him a title. The wills of such as were strangers to him, and of such as, from hate and prejudice to others, had appointed the prince their heir, he utterly rejected. But as he relieved the honest poverty of the virtuous, so he degraded from the senate, or suffered to quit it of their own accord. 
Vibidius Varro, Marius Nepos, Appius Appianus, Cornelius Sila, and Quintius Vitellius, all prodigals, and only through debauchery, indigent. End of section 22